In late-breaking news, Matt Glazer has graciously offered a From the Greater Groove exclusive, an unreleased, never-before-heard Wayfaring Strangers track called When I Was a Cowboy, which will be included in its entirety at the end of this interview. Enjoy. The time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Listening to For the Greater Groove, the future of strings. I'm your host, Tracy Silverman, and what we do here is we, we have discussions with some of our most important string players about where strings may be headed. And we reconcile this 400-year-old tradition of string playing with the present plugged-in online 21st century American musical culture. That's what we do here, and I am so thrilled to have Matt Glazer on the show today because he is at the front lines of what's going on in uh, American string playing. If you're not familiar with Matt, because he's a very humble guy, he is uh, sequestered in his office at Berkeley where he's been for the last 44 years. Do I have that right? 44-ish years and where he is uh, an institution there unto himself, a center point, a hub, if you will, of American string playing. Matt has been the artistic director of the American Roots Music Program at the Berklee College of Music for how many years, Matt? Uh, 14 years. 14 years, okay. Before that was chair of the string department for 28 yeah, some odd years, something years, like that, yeah. and really created the string program over there, put it into gear and hired some of the most impressive string players on the globe, uh, brought them all up to Berkeley and made it a center of, of uh, American string playing, jazz, roots playing, and uh, everything in between, um, music from all over the world, 
uh, ensembles and all the great stuff that happens up there. This is not an ad for the Berkeley School of Music, but a big fan of Berkeley and everything that's going on up there. And this guy is one of the main reasons. Um, Matt has played at Carnegie Hall with guys like Stefan Grappelli, Yo-Yo Ma. He's played with a who's who. Guys going back to like Ralph Stanley, David Grisman, Bob Dylan, Lee Konitz, Leo Kaki. I could go on and on. Bela Fleck, Alison Krauss, uh, his own Wayfaring Strangers, and, and I'm leaving lots out for the sake of time. He's won the very uh, coveted and impressive Artist Teacher Award from ASTA. This is, he's the first non-classical violinist to win this prestigious award. Past recipients include people like Joseph Segetti, Pablo Casals, Isaac Stern, Yehudi Menuhin, and he's the author of many books, including, and look these up on Amazon and get them if you're a string player, Bluegrass, Fiddle, and Beyond, Jazz Violin with Stefan Grappelli, which I have right here. The Berkeley Practice Method, which, quote, teaches you to play in a rock band. How about that? Learn how to listen, interact, and respond, improvise, and become part of the groove. I was very impressed by that little descriptor of that book, How to Teach the Groove. It's something I want to get into in this show today. Wrote a book called Ear Training for Instrumentalists, a must-have for any improvising string player. And Fiddle Tunes on Jazz Changes, which really kind of highlights one of, I think, Matt's real missions in life is to, and this is from, uh, from an interview Matt did with uh, Christian Howes on his uh, wonderful podcast. Uh, Matt said, I'm on a mission to view American music as one thing. One thing. And focusing on the connectedness across seemingly different styles, across racial, cultural, and regional boundaries in black and white American roots music. And that is where I want to start this conversation. Okay. Um, because uh, tell me a little about what that means, that mission to see American music as one thing. Well, there are, there are a lot of ways one could talk about this, but I often have this vision, and maybe you remember this, of going into a record store and there would be these bins, a bin that says rock and roll, and then alphabetically there would be CDs and jazz and country music or bluegrass, blues. So these are, these stylistic terms are at least in one way initially marketing terms because somebody wanted to sell recordings and they needed a name for this product, so they put it in this bin. And I think we've all come to accept the binification <laughs> of music uh, in a way that's ultimately harmful yeah. and is not the way that musicians, you know, music is a beyond words and you, musicians hear music and it gets yeah. in their psyche and their musical brain and they absorb it and they're not thinking, oh, I just learned something from, uh, I'm going to take this thing from a blues guy and put it into my thing, which is X. Those are all words that describe things they may be accurate to a certain extent. They may not be accurate. So I want to push back against these stylistic describe descriptors and try to view all of American music as one thing because people live in this country and they hear music 
and they're influenced by music that they hear. And it all gets mixed together and then each individual creates their music which has multiple threads in it. So I gave a talk recently. I gave this keynote speech to the uh, International Bluegrass Music Association. If I may jump in real quickly and say, take a look at that IBMA keynote speech on uh, YouTube, it's worth listening. Thank you. I, I'm very proud of it and I worked really hard. I'm not a hardworking guy, uh, but I did. <laughs> I'm lazy. I'm predominantly very lazy, but I did get off my behind and work for a couple of months trying to use the technology that my work study students showed me <laughs> to take little clips of music and show similarities between early bluegrass and other music that was happening in the United States at the same time. I just want to give a disclaimer. I don't know anything about music after 1950. <laughs> so I've really decided... I really focus on music in America between 1920 and 1950. If you're interested in other stuff, you got to talk to other people. You're like, <laughs> Fair if, enough. I, I, I am now joking. I woke up one morning and I realized, oh my God, I'm only interested in music of dead people. If somebody's <laughs> alive, I'm no longer interested in their, I'm not interested in their music. So if you're interested in music of living people, I'm not your guy. I'm interested in the music of deceased people. <laughs> um, so I found, you know, these, I was especially, you know, your your podcast is about the groove. I, I don't focus that much on groove, but I do now focus a lot on rhythm yeah. and specifically melodic rhythm, the rhythms of melodies. This has become my obsession over the last couple of years. So it, it's a related topic. Uh, it's instead of playing things from the rhythm section on the violin, it's about playing things from actual other melodic instruments and the melody rhythms of songs and to be able to really grasp the rhythms of melodies. I feel like that's something that people don't go deeply enough into. Uh, so we yeah. can go... Very, we can go into that. Yeah, do you want to uh, just just for the sake of uh, you know clarifying what you mean by that? Do you want to give us a quick example of like cakewalk rhythm or the uh, ragtime second? What was the second? I've forgotten that. Well, yeah. So all of this stuff comes out of this basic polyrhythm of uh, the the three against four, three three against two, and that the way in which that these basic polyrhythms entered into American music from Africa to America and this great African-American contribution, which has been the engine, rhythmic engine of music in America and how yes. even in musics that appear to be very white, if they're, if they're music that is great music and we revere it, White musicians have absorbed from black musicians these polyrhythmic ideas. And even in music that you think, oh man, that's white people's music. You know, the music itself is deeply African-American. So yeah. bluegrass is a music that you think of. It presents as a music largely by white people, although luckily, thank God, the relationship between 
Bill Monroe and African-American musicians, specific African-American musicians, Arnold Schultz, and the, the relationship between uh, Hank Williams and I think his name was Teapot Payne. You know, now we're, we're learning about personal relationships between white and black musicians that led to the creation of country music. Uh, I was interested in not even the personal relationships, but just music that people heard and the music that they heard on records and on radio that might have influenced them. To me, this is a something I'm fascinated by and I wanted to really study it. So I listened to some recordings of Earl Scruggs and he was playing particular rhythms that are very uh, hip. So you mentioned one uh, very common one is called a two note secondary rag rhythm. It's do di 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 da. So it's basically the basic rhythm of ragtime is da 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 ba do ba you do da ba do ba you but that you know three three eighth notes grouped together in four four time. If you tie those first two eighth notes together, you get do di do di do di do di do di do. Now this is a very popular rhythm in American music of all sorts. In my IBMA talk, I play six or seven examples across different styles of music. But it, interestingly enough, all of these young people who you and I work with, they're, they're unaware of this, and they would have a hard time playing that rhythm, and they wouldn't understand it as a part of the language of American music. I think like you want to understand these common uh, rhythms that are part of music in America across the 20th century, across these different styles. First of all, it's just a fact that it's there and it's not sufficiently studied. And then it gives you a sense of uh, patriotism, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> like America is really bound together. We're all one. We're bound together. Yeah. All of these people <laughs> who appear to be disparate regionally, racially, culturally, temporally. There are things in the music that conjoin us all. And yes. that to me is very inspiring. I find that poignant and inspiring and also kind of like taking the blinders off of your eyes when you realize these things. Yeah. Like, wow, these rhythms are pervasive in American music. And then you start to hear music as one you asked, this is all getting back to your initial question. How do you view things yep. as what? It, it's not a psychological trick. You don't have to fool yourself. All you have to do is look at music deeply the way music actually is. And we know this because I think it was Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie said, you know, the, or maybe it was, um, uh, Alan Lomax said that the commercial record companies did a great service by documenting all kinds of music in America throughout the 20th century. They were, yeah. they were not doing it for educational purposes. They wanted to make a buck. But in their desire to make a buck, they recorded widely all kinds of music, rural music of all sorts, folk music. Every, they were just like, okay, if, if you know people who are musicians, send them on Saturday to the hotel here. We'll record them and we'll put out records. So we have documented 
The musical life of America in the 20th century is well documented by the commercial record companies. And you can access, if you have a telephone now, all of that music is accessible to you on YouTube. Almost everything you would ever want to hear is on YouTube. And so I'm always frustrated because I feel like if you're going to be a musician, shouldn't you learn about this stuff? It's like saying, oh, I'm a writer, but I've never read Shakespeare or Plato or Cervantes. I just, I've never read anything. I only read the most recent thing. Don't you want to know about the history of your field? To me, I, I, I'm obsessed personally like this. I, I'm ashamed when I don't know something. I feel a deep sense of shame. Like, how is it that I don't know that? I, I'm embarrassed. But young people today are not embarrassed if they don't know yeah. something. I, there's been a change in a mindset here. Well, uh, brings to mind a couple of things. One, the your goal, and I wonder if you're still doing this, to learn a new tune every day to sing to your wife. Uh, I understand that you were doing that for, for quite a while. Did I tell you this or did you hear somebody else? I, I heard this in a <laughs> podcast. I heard this in Chris House's podcast. Yeah, this happened during covid like life yeah. changed during COVID and I started to learn a tune every day and every night I would sing the song to my wife and we would dance. And I did that right. for 1400 consecutive days. Wow. And then I stopped. So I have four, I learned 1400 standards <laughs> and I have a list of every one of these standards, 1400 consecutive nights. Uh, every day I would learn the song and I would try to play it on the fiddle and that night I would, and I was also doing it to ward off Alzheimer's disease because my mother died of Alzheimer's. Huh, so I'm very terrified of that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I really felt, you know, they say use it or lose it. And I was like, okay, I want to use my brain. And there was, there's no limit to how much you can memorize. Like in the Islamic world, it's very common for people to memorize the entire Quran. Huh. That's a big book, yeah. you know. And in Czechoslovakia, people... Uh, like tw commommonly memorized twenty thousand pages of folk tales, wow. so there's no limit to that kind of thing, so huh. I, you know I felt like my brain was or any your brain is unlimited in how much it can memorize, so I learned a song every day, and i I'm not nearly done, but I just kind of ran out of steam at a certain point, and you're still um, married. <laughs> my wife loved that she just I mean really the most. <laughs> My singing is not that great, but it's very romantic. We, we like to dance together. <laughs> That's really beautiful. You know, getting back to this idea of one American music, one shared American music for one moment, because it's it's too big of an idea right now. Why, why do you think that is? Why is that? Uh, because it speaks to this moment in history, uh, what I think this country is experiencing in terms of polarizing uh, trains of thought. And listening to you talk about this, it reminded me how much musicians borrow from each other, uh, and just shamelessly, uh, and sometimes with you know with due credit, and often without, for hundreds of years, 
Musicians have borrowed from each other. We borrow across racial lines, and we still do. And we love music across racial lines, Mm. and we Mm. still do. And just as we love food from other countries. And I think this this idea of borrowing from each other uh, is an incredibly healthy, wonderful, important, uh, in fact, possibly the most crucial part of music. Just as just as the idea of of variation is what makes Darwin's theories work is the fact that there is mutation. Things change. Without that change, things would would not uh, be able to progress evolutionarily. Yeah. And without these changes and these exchanges that happen between seemingly disparate uh, musical camps. Uh, music doesn't progress. It just seems to me that this is how music evolves. This is such an important topic to get right, and it's very challenging because there is influence and there is appropriation. And it's important. The more you know about and the more one learns about the details of all these things, the more one can make distinctions. It's clearly wrong to lump all white people into the camp of being appropriators. And at the same time, there were clearly people who it could be charged with criminal activity by stealing intellectual property. So yeah. all of these things coexist. And it's important to try to thread it, the needle subtly and get the details right. Uh, yes. What I don't think is anything that becomes, life is complicated. And if it becomes a bumper sticker, is when it, it, it should be something you're cautious about. So I, I'm always trying to figure out when is it, I'm interested in this exact thing you're saying, when is it influence and when is it appropriation? Certainly, I think we can all agree on some basic principles, which is African-American music is the driving engine of all of American music. And that's both for white people and black people. That's where the interest is, and that's the reality of musicians' lives. They're hearing things, they're influenced by those things. And, you know, maybe I'll play, you know, before we, we went out live, I, I played you a little test of Bach. Yeah. So let's, let's try to go back to the guy who could invoke intellectual property theft more than any other person <laughs> in history. <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach, if he was had stayed alive and had a good lawyer, <laughs> would he be could very have been wealthy. Ra- he'd be very wealthy because everybody stole from him. Every mother, father stole from him. <laughs> in Europe, in America, across racial lines. So here's um, here's one I was listening to recently. This is a I've been listening to the Bach chorales. This is one called Herr Jesu Christ and some other words in German.
So 48 seconds of music, in 48 seconds of music, he took this folk, you know, Lutheran hymn, the melodies were widely known to his congregation. He was he was harmonizing these melodies for his congregation to sing on Sunday, not for professional musicians. You know, so he, he thought, okay, here's this melody that's widely known to the congregation. It had been already around for a hundred years or more by the time he did these. And he thought, I'll give everybody a nice melody to sing. Everyone get all four parts. Everyone gets a beautiful melody. And when you put those beautiful melodies together, you get harmony the harmony that results in this 48 seconds is completely modern to this day, even though Bach lived from 1685 to 1750. There's all, you know, the, I just read a quote that the jazz pianist Fred Hirsch said, everything he learned, he learned from Bach chorales. So these fundamental things that... Uh, come down to human beings' consciousness through these great figures, Johann Sebastian Bach, Louis Armstrong, whoever the great figure is, becomes a, uh, their divine inspiration comes and they make this amazing music. And then everybody's inspired and influenced by those people. Louis Armstrong was incredibly influential and also extraordinarily generous financially. He always wanted to help people. He would give money to whoever was in need. Hmm. So he, you know, he was very, he wasn't like, oh my God, people are ripping me off. He was the opposite, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I like to come back to these, uh, the things that have been of interest to me and true for me have been of interest to me for 50 years and continue to be of interest to me. I've been interested in the same things for, for, for 50 years, and I'm not finished with them yet. Good. In fact, I haven't barely started. <laughs> the things that I'm interested in, I've barely begun to learn about after 50 years of being obsessed with them. Uh, this is another thing, which is to kind of dig into little bits and the details and really get into the little bits and the details of music. And why, why do you suppose they, these things still interest you after 50 years? Because I think the building blocks of music, are. Uh, it takes a long time to master the building blocks of music. So, for instance, I've been trying to sing Bach chorales. I practice them by, I have the recordings and I have the, the score, and I try to sing each part along with the recording. And then similarly... With a, now I'll play a Louis Armstrong solo, the American Bach. Um, here's, I'll play you two solos of Louis Armstrong from 1927. The first is on a blues called No Papa No. <laughs> So not only, that's one chorus of blues 
1927. Not only is it incredibly rich rhythmically, but it's it also shows you like four different approaches to how to play rhythmically. In the, not only are the rhythms complicated, but they're not complicated in only one way. There's there's the kind of 12-8 blues feel. There's this kind of martial... There's a more operatic kind of vocal, lyrical approach. Mm-hmm. There's a more modern intervallic thing. So there's four different approaches to how to play, not only the rhythms themselves. What's really remarkable and and hardest to imitate, I think, is the timing. Yeah. The notes aren't difficult. Right. They're not, you know, uh, outrageous in any way. Yeah. Um, but the timing is is just inimitable. Yeah. So he's playing relative to the beat in a very modern way in parts of that 12 bars, you know, before the beat, on the beat, relative, you know, fr- very free at times. And then, you know, similar, a few months later, he did uh, Boku Jack. thing he goes there's like a a foreshadowing of bebop like he's playing all the you know all the chromaticism um what were you gonna say i was gonna say that listening to to uh louis armstrong reminds me of something i heard you say which is talking about the resistance uh of the bow against the string and the resistance (coughs) against the Hmm. beat I believe I heard you say, yeah. uh, maybe in that IBMA uh, speech. Uh, and I want you to talk about that, that idea of resistance, because it's such a tactile, physical yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, so first of all, there's this kind of conflation in reality of the rhythm, the timbre, articulation, duration. So those are four things that, just occurred to me, but certainly those four are important. So the exact duration of the note, the exact articulation of the note, dynamics, timbre, these are again like our bins in a store. These are just words. Mm -hmm. And the words maybe point to a unified reality of the music, but they're important as a, a different way to look at these things. So how is he starting the note? You know, a lot of jazz is played on these wind instruments. So I love music like of the, I love, you know, I'm coming back, I'm copying to what drives me, which is I love swing music. (laughs) I guess if I was going to have a true bumper sticker for me, that's true for me. I love this music. I love swing music and I always have loved it. And I think it's the greatest. So I'm obsessed with this stuff. And I feel like for string, string players, there's so many string players for whom they're really not gone deep enough into the details of articulation, rhythm, timbre, dynamics, duration of the note. They haven't gone sufficiently deep into it 
to really play that music accurately. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, why a lot of, you know, jazz violin has like a bad, a bad smell yes. about it among jazz musicians. And it's justified because the, for the, with the exception of Stuff Smith, nobody really did the necessary work to try to play this great music on a violin yes. with the with with the right vibe, the right accuracy, and the, it's again in the area of the rhythms of the melodies, the articulation. Um, so then you get a lot of people doing like, a, I mean, God love Joe Venuti and Stefan Grappelli and Eddie South. These guys were all amazing, but they didn't. They didn't study Louis Armstrong like Stuff yeah, Smith did. Yeah. Stuff Smith said he went, you know, when he was a kid, his father wanted him to go practice classical music in the shed, and he would take his Louis Armstrong records out on the Victrola and practice Louis. That's a quote of Stuff Smith's. So he really, I always say that he's the most revolutionary Stuff Smith because prior to him, there were two ways to play the violin. There were, broadly, there was Western European and other classical traditions, and there were various folk traditions, all of which are vast categories, but those were the two categories of playing the violin on earth, folk traditions and classical traditions, whether it's Indian classical, Turkish court music, Western European classical music of all sorts, But Stuff Smith had the idea, I'm going to make a new category of violin playing, which is jazz and swing violin playing. I'm going to, there's something new here, and I'm going to create a new way to play the violin. Giovannuti got close, but he clearly was using European classical technical approach to the instrument, and he began to then, he swung like a mother father, you know, but, but not on the microscopic level that Stuff Smith did where Stuff Smith really understood what was going on with Roy Eldridge. And, and Ponte as well, I just want to throw into the mix as for people who really mm. play like horn players and not like fiddle players. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that Ponte plays modern jazz violin. He plays modern jazz. And he was the first guy to grasp modern jazz as a thing. But prior to modern jazz, you know, I don't know that I'd be very interested to ask Ponty about Louis Armstrong. <laughs> and it's like a very different universe, these, these, uh, these things. Very, very different. <laughs> I'm less and less interested in the violin uh, as a thing. I'm, and I feel that because I feel that music is very vast and I'm at a point where I want to view music as this vast thing and I want to I guess I, I, I'm I coming more at things from an ear standpoint. I want to start by getting music through my ears into my musical psyche. So that means I'm working on ear training and memorizing music, learning repertoire, singing solos. So I, I'm starting from a more singing and ear training standpoint. And it may or may not, I'm finished, I'm finished gigging. I'm not gigging anymore. So I don't have the pressure of having to try to keep my chops up to a certain level that where I could perform at a drop of a hat. 
I don't, you know, I, I've decided I, I don't want to gig anymore. I don't want to travel. I don't like traveling. Mm -hmm. So it just, if I realized I didn't want to travel anymore, that meant, you know, I don't mind playing with, I like to play music with friends. And I could, might play a gig if I could walk to it. <laughs> there are a few little places I could walk to where I live. Uh, I'm not gigging anymore. And I'm trying to grow my musicianship from the inside out. Nice. You know, from ear, ear, ear training, singing, hearing rhythms. And then when I get that stuff internally to then put it on the fiddle. pressure of performing um you know and i've recorded there are things i like that i've played over the years and many things that i hate and my playing was what it was it was very all over the map and not consistent in any way but there are things i play that i was happy with mm -hmm. and i achieved a, a certain thing that i okay i got to that level not any farther but i do feel passionate about growing young, helping young musicians grow and having a lifetime goal of developing as a musician, which transcends the particular physicality of the violin. Uh, for some reason, I, I, I've left that world behind a little bit. I don't listen to that much violin music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> me, me I, either, to be honest. You know, so what are we listening to? I, I, I want to listen to the best music I can that I love and I, without regard to anything else. I feel like I'm in a confession and you're, you're the priest. <laughs> Man, I am about as far from a priest. <laughs> well, I, I know a lot of jokes, but I'll tell you offline the jokes. <laughs> I would love to hear them. And, uh, you know, speaking of jokes and not, not necessarily jokes, but... Um, I, you know, you've met so many of the great jazz players. I mean, Venuti, Grappelli, of great, great jazz fiddle players, plus also just great jazz players of all, all kinds. You must have a couple of clean stories that you can share with us, <laughs> with our all ages uh, listenership here. <laughs> yeah. I, I did know Claude Williams very well. Did you know Claude at all? I think Claude I met was him really once. is really an amazing guy. You know, he played 
guitar in Count Basie's band at first and then also played some fiddle. But like we were saying, the guys in Basie's band hated the fiddle. They And so they got Basie to basically fire <laughs> no Claude because he played the fiddle. And then Freddie Green took over the guitar chair in Basie's band and played guitar for 60 years. Uh, Freddie Green... The, you know, Freddie Green in many ways is my favorite musician of all because he played rhythm acoustic rhythm guitar in Count Basie's band for 60 years. He never took a solo. He never had a microphone. <laughs> he just wow. played. Wow. He never even had a microphone. He played acoustic rhythm guitar for 60 years. He played... Eight billion perfect quarter notes. Like if you listen to Count Basie records, if you're talking about like coming back to fundamentals, yeah, to get string players to try to play evenly spaced quarter notes that swing yeah. the way Freddie Green did, you know, it's unbelievable. In fact, I, I you know, maybe I should cue up a little Count Basie here. You know, while you're uh, doing that, I want to, um, this brings up uh, an interesting concept which i would love to get your your take on okay which is this yeah. whole idea of groove uh for in and classical yeah. string players and this concept th this perception that i think a lot of classical players have that if you uh adhere to a groove you're being mechanical and unmusical uh wow and that it's the job of the classical string players and this is especially true of violinists as compared to like cellists and violists and people who are a little more accustomed to playing support roles but that our our job that our music is going to be mechanical boring um uh if we don't play if we don't make an effort to be expressive uh and this is what i was told and and sort of ingrained in my in my brain as a classical violinist and this concept of groove of playing 6000 perfect perfect quarter notes uh and and the beauty in uh that eternity that that represents that that you know vanishing point in in a uh, in a painting that's represented by those evenly spaced telephone poles uh how that how important that is uh, in in classical music as well as in groove music, obviously. And what's what do you think about classical players and this relationship to groove? Well, you know, it might be that people are just speaking different languages uh, that that you can't communicate to each other across these different languages. I don't know if you saw. I'll just, I'm not a film critic, but I don't know if you saw this Leonard Bernstein yes, movie, I Maestro. I was very angry with it and disappointed in it in a lot of ways. And for, you know, I don't really, to me, Bernstein was like a god. And I really don't care about the personal idiosyncrasies or who people sleep with in the slightest. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear, you know, Musicians have had crazy lives of one sort or the other since Bach had uh, an affair with uh, one of the singers in the organ loft in the church, <laughs> you know, or, or punch, punched the guy, 
punched the bassoon player in the nose and was sent to jail. Those are both true, true stories. I don't want to hear about it. I don't care. Yeah. But one of the m- moments of most musical life in that film was when his kids put on a record of the counting song and they danced to it in the living room. like oh my god this is music so this swinging grooving track on the record to me was clearly the most superior music <laughs> that was played in the entire film i love bernstein's music he's a god to me but just as a human being i responded to this record the kids were dancing to <laughs> as being superior you know so i'll play a little I'll play a track of a blues vocal with uh, with Count Basie. Uh, stop, pretty baby, stop. My voice like a nightingale singing in the night. Sweetest sound I ever heard. It fills me with delight. Pretty baby, stop. Cause I want to talk with me. I want to tell you pretty nothings about how good you look to me. Anyway, you know, to me, that is the greatest music. I just love Count Basie's music. And Freddie Green said once, you know, there are a number of famous stories about him. One time a saxophone player said to Basie, what's the right tempo for this track? And Basie turned to Freddie Green. Uh, he pointed to Freddie Green. And the saxophone player said, whose band is this anyway? And Basie pointed to Freddie Green. Uh, so uh, he's... And Freddie Green himself said, when you're playing with Basie, he talked in great detail about the rhythmic waves in a band like that. He Everything you think is just simple is not simple. To control the band and to prevent the people who want to rush from rushing, to prevent the people who want to drag from dragging, to keep the quarter note pulse steady and perfect and grooving for 60 years without a microphone. And he said, in the interview, he said, there's no time for smiling at the girls when you're playing with Basie. You've got to keep your entire focus. And Wynton Marcellus said, if you lose your focus on the groove for a second, you've stopped swinging. So the idea that there's anything limiting about that clearly 
it's one of the deepest things. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. your heartbeat is even for your whole lifetime. And if I could, I would gladly choose to play quarter notes in a swing tempo perfectly than play the Beethoven Violin Concerto. <laughs> like, no one's making that offer to me, but I have no doubt about it. But I've always been a person I love folk music and I, you know, vernacular music and music that doesn't have an intellectual superstructure as part of it. I've always been mostly attracted to these kinds of things. And my role is to show people the value of these musics and that those musics are as valuable as any music that has classical appropriation, you know, uh, approval right. and uh, doc documentation. <laughs> and um, so for me, it's self-evident that the greatest vernacular music in America is as great as any music human beings have ever made. So Beautiful. that's my view. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautifully stated. And, <laughs> and what do you, how do you respond to a classical lover, music lover, <clears throat> who might say something along the lines of, but that's just pop music. It's not. There's, no, no, nobody, there's no. There's nothing. There's no gravitas. There's no. There's nothing important there. I would say talk. To, you know, I got an email from. Uh, who's the great pianist? Who, who, Emmanuel Axe, yeah. out of the blue, nice. emailed me. Really, and asked me about like he's an Errol Garner fanatic and and, and an Oscar Peterson fanatic and wanted sure, to talk about. Sure. You know, so I would say talk to all the classical musicians who are brilliant and realize the, the greatness of jazz, of, of whom their numbers are legion. Carter Bray, principal cellist of the New York Philharmonic, and I went to high school together. He had a picture of Bird and Diz in his cello case <laughs> for, for 20 years, you know. So the best musicians realize, yeah. and, Bach, you know, Bach had folk dancing in his house. I mean, yeah. It's only the the more limited musicians who can't perceive music in its greatness, its vastness, who would say things like that. I would say talk to your your betters in the classical music world, nice. who immediately realize how great all this other stuff is. Yeah. I mean, really, any violinist who can't appreciate Brittany Haas is really fucked. Yeah. Excuse my French. <laughs> yes, you know, what you don't. Yeah, how can you not you know, get you, that? You yeah. can't... How can you not get the greatest human dancing energy yeah. embodied through a violin and with incredible control. groove and articulation? Unbelievable. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. You know, uh, let's, let's talk for, for one brief minute, if I can steal another minute of your time. Sure, of course. About improvisation. Um, because, yeah. you know, a lot of people come to Berkeley, they want to improvise, it's a, a very intimidating uh, subject because there have been so many incredibly impressive improvisers that we have recordings of. There's a whole lot of improvisation that can happen without ever really moving your left hand. Rhythmic improvisation can be a fantastic entry point to a more um, melodic improvisation. And have you, what's yeah, been your yeah. experience with that? And how have you 
used your melodic imp uh, rhythmic analyses and things like that to help students uh, enter improvisation through that portal. Yeah, this is a vast thing you're bringing up. It's amazing. Um, first of all, again, I just want to say your strum rhythm thing is really mind-blowing. Thank you, man. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote my master's thesis on improvisation in Texas-style fiddling. Mark O'Connor and I played together with Grisman at Stefan Grappelli's 80th birthday party at Carnegie Hall. And the night before that concert, Mark and I went out to dinner. I was in graduate school. I was looking for a topic to write my master's thesis on. And we got talking and, and I thought, oh, you know what? I'll do it on improvisation in Texas-style fiddling. And that led me down a pathway which has, like everything else, I be I'm trying to get simpler and simpler and simpler. Everything complicated, pe other people can deal with, and there are many people doing amazing work with complicated things. I'm trying to get it simpler and simpler things happen. Yeah, me too, man. Um, me too. Because maybe it's a process of aging. I don't know. But I realized for myself as a player, I hadn't, I hadn't mastered very simple things yet. I was doing all kinds of crap, and the basics I still hadn't mastered. So now I'm back trying to master the basics, intervals and simple rhythms. And it, those two things together can generate an approach to improvisation, which is very simple and can be thought of as theme and variations. Yes. Making variations on a melody making rhythmic variations on a melody and melodic variations on a melody. That's the whole thing. What I just said is the entire thing that you could extrapolate from that. So theme and variations, taking a melody, making rhythmic and melodic variations on a melody. That's a very short phrase, what I just said, but it could generate 20 years worth of work yeah. for people. And it's also much less scary because, first of all, it's the way composers work. They theme and variations. You know, I played you a Bach chorale. I just bought yesterday, I went to the house of the late composer Donald Martino. I don't know if you ever heard of Donald Martino, a great classical composer. He taught at New England Conservatory, at, at Boston Conservatory. He's, he's no longer alive. I went to his widow's house. One of the many things he did was he took the Bach chorale's Many of those chorales Bach harmonized multiple times. So Martino took the chorales that Bach harmonized multiple times and put them in the same key and put them on top of each other on orchestral staves. So you can see how Bach did theme and variations on these chorale melodies, hmm. rhythmic variations in, in the inner voices, including all the rhythms in America, do da do da da do da do da di da di da di da di all the rhythmic shit that we think is just American, Bach was already hip to it. Where he got that from, that's a whole nother question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think to train people to look at, and of course, we mentioned Brittany Haas, folk musicians improvise this way without even thinking about it. 
They make up subtle rhythmic variations, always different. Rhythmic variations on a melody, subtle melodic variations. This all came for me out of studying the work of the Irish fiddler Tommy Potts, mm -hmm. who was a great improviser. He played variations on these Irish reels and jigs every time he would do differently. And he would hear the core melody in his mind and elaborate that core melody in subtle different ways. So this is my message. And this is why I'm able to work with folk musicians. This is a universal improvisational method. Mm -hmm. I think it's universal in all styles of music. Yeah. You have melodies that are altered and they're altered melodically and rhythmically. Am I wrong about that? Do you know of any style of music that... That doesn't have that? That doesn't have that. I mean, classical music has it. If you go back to Bach and also the Romantic era, you know, Vinyavsky and whoever playing yeah. cadenzas. But Bach certainly had figured bass, so you had to be able to he realize wrote, that. He, you, yeah. He wrote out variations in some of the violin partitas. Where yeah, he would have, yeah, a, yeah, have a dance, yeah. and then there's a double, which is clearly a double-time variation of the, the melody of the You play them both simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. Or sometimes sometimes there's a little extra line above the chart that has... Bach would write in some little elaborated bit. And he, expect, player and he expected the performer to, when there was a repeat To do his time, own shit. To, yeah. to vary it. Don't play it the same way twice. What the hell <laughs> is wrong with you? You know, yeah. vary it. Vary it the Amazing. same time. So I just want to add one. So exciting. I want to add one little yeah. uh, extra thing to that idea of, of uh, you know, variate, theme and variations. Uh, is groove and variations, just as you can do the same thing with with a melody and the rhythm of the melody wow. and the melody and the notes oh. of the melody. If you're a guitar player and and the groove is you know whatever, you can take that and then change it slightly subtly. If you're a slightly. rhythm guitar yeah. player, if yeah. you're not changing yeah. that groove over the course of 16 or 32 bars of repetition, if you're playing it exactly the same way, you're playing it wrong. You need to be letting it grow, yeah. evolve and have variations. That's part of your job. You're expected to do that if you're in the rhythm section. And that's just a matter of variations on a groove, which is the same concept. I love this. I know nothing about this, but I can imagine who's the great ba Motown bass player, James Jamerson. Yep. James Jamerson. Uh, I can I can imagine him doing exactly what you're just singing. That it's not identical. Yeah. It's subtle changes. Exactly. You listen. Fascinating. Listen to uh, Stevie Wonder play "Superstition." It's the same riff over wow. and over, but you could listen every time. It sounds fresh. Okay. And why? Well, the the differences wow. are very subtle. Ghost yeah. notes. I love it. You know, it's all yes. coming in that whole yeah. idea of ghosting and is that note there? Is it not there? Is it there this time? The last time it wasn't there? Wow. All of those little tiny things that we think me, you know, oh, well, that's not really improvising. It is. It actually is. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It truly is. And yeah, that's the kind of improvising I'm interested in. That's it, you know, on the subtle level. Yeah. And, you know, just to come back to somebody I uh, I think about a lot is the great alto saxophonist Lee Konitz. He 
he said his approach to improvising is he wants to hear the next note that he's going to play. So instead of, it's not intellectual, it's not rules-based, it's not a bunch of book learning, it's based in your ear. You hear the next note that you want to play. So what you're describing in the varying the groove has to originate in the ear. You know, you're hearing the groove and you you hear a next little thing. And it originates in the body. It's such a body. What I'm really discovering is that compared to melodic playing, which is so much about Mm. tones and pitches and ear and ear training and audiating and hearing those pitches before we play them, when it comes to grooves and rhythmic playing, it's it yeah. starts as a dance and it's a byproduct yep. of that physical motion that you're doing. And as you're Amazing. improvising this dance and sometimes you're leaning a little more this way, sometimes you're leaning a little, sometimes you're st- putting your foot down Incredible. a little harder, sometimes it's lighter. That f- yeah. the physicality of that and the organic yeah. human nature of it never being the same because our bodies don't work that way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The humanity of that uh, is something that I embrace and that I, I try to show to classical players because I was brought up without any of that in my classical training. I was brought up that you should be able to play the same thing exactly the same way 10 times in a row. Then you've got it. Then you're ready to go out and, and perform it. And that's such but, a But there concept. must be... Gr- when you think of the great classical violinists... Who are the ones who are closest to what you're describing? Who, so who you know, moved the most, who had the most in their body? So you know who, I, when I was in my 20s, I discovered Fritz Kreisler. And he yeah. played this tune, uh, one of his, his tunes, Sean Rosmarin. And... Very cute little piece. It comes up, I don't know, maybe 16 times in the course of that thing, that little phrase. It is not... Yeah, played the same way. Never the same. Once. Wow. Yeah. And it's just. Is remote. there a video of Fritz Kreisler? Is there any film footage of I him playing? Mo- I've never I don't seen. Know. F- Maybe not. Maybe not. I'm thinking back of classical violin players I've seen and heard, and who have more of that. That's I think the great. Well, I mean, the great players always have this because the great, great musicians. And people like yeah. Casals, Rubinstein, Oystrak, you know, any of the yeah. great oh, yeah. players yeah. have transcended yeah. all of these things because they're playing spirit. They're just, they're, they're, yeah. there's a spirit vibrating yeah. in them that they are sharing with us. And, yeah. but they're not the people I'm really talking about. I'm talking about the way it's sure. <laughs> taught, taught to students yeah. in, a, in, a, in a more pedagogical framework. Uh, and how we, f- what the focus is on for classical, and this is again more violin than probably than other instruments, but this focus on virtuosity and technique and being able to replicate something perfectly as opposed to exploring the handmade quality of when things change from cycle to cycle and that repetition. And, and this is why I think a lot, because it's never taught to classical musicians, I think, uh, or at least it wasn't in my day, uh, I think that's why there is this conception that groove, that things, groove and rhythmic things are can be mechanical because you're supposed to replicate. You're supposed to be able to play things mm-hmm. exactly the same way, you know, to infinity. And 
that discipline of classical string playing is very unhelpful when it comes to improvisation, obviously. I'm a, I must be living under a rock because I, I thought that this kind of approach to classical playing had been roundly defeated. <laughs> Maybe it has. It's been many... By the forces of alter, <laughs> it's alternative been... string playing. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not sure Eclectic Styles has really made it over to Juilliard, but it, it could very well be. I tell you what, it's been a long time since I've been uh, in a music conservatory. But um, this is the way I was brought but, up. But you play... Don't you play concertos where you're the soloist playing contemporary concertos written for you yeah. with orchestras like that's you've you're the winner you're but this there is, you're it's, doing it, your thing well I, I appreciate that but it's interesting because it brings about <laughs> something that i'm constantly dealing with when i'm preparing for these concerts and that is preparing to play a concerto with an orchestra is about as polar opposite a process from improvising and composing and uh, being mm. creative as anything could mm. be. It's, uh, it, mm. it can be, it's creative in a different way in that I'm, I'm trying to, you know, but it's creative in the way that an actor reads lines creatively. You bring something to it. If mm. your director allows you to improvise, great. If your director wants you to stay exactly to the script, then you don't have room to improvise. And that's generally the case when a con uh, concerto is written, you're supposed to play all those wow. notes. Um, <laughs> but my point is that when I'm preparing for those things, I'm drilling stuff with a metronome. I'm trying to be able to play a phrase the exact same way 10 times in a row. Um, and to be, to be bulletproof, Ooh. basically, because when you're standing on stage, who knows if the horn player is going to play his part? And, you know, suddenly there's a timpani where it wasn't supposed to be, and you're playing it by memory, and you, you know, to be, to be able to withstand that, that, kind of situation you have to know it in a way that only comes from deep deep muscle memory of repetition beyond the point of you know uh, that most of us will admit to even just hours and hours of repetition very different process it's a very very different process from what i prefer to do in my studio which is to write compose music to improvise music to be creative and to let my imagination Go. So these are two very, yeah. very different processes, the idea of creating and the idea of performing something that people have paid money to see. You know? Yeah. Uh, do you find it gratifying to perform these concertos written for you? Didn't Philip Glass or somebody write one for you? John I mean, Adams, I think Tim Riley. John, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Do, do, you, do you find that gratifying play? I mean, those are amazing, famous yeah. composers. Uh, I, I do. Um, the, um, the John Adams piece is is a, a remarkable piece in that it it sounds like I'm improvising the entire piece from start to finish. And wow. in fact, when I first started playing wow. it by, because of the way he wrote it, um, and when I first started playing it by memory a couple of years after, after I started playing it, uh, John came to a concert and he came backstage afterwards and he said, for God's sake, would you please just bring a music stand up on stage with you so people don't think you're making the whole damn thing up? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, That's but hysterical. that piece is a, wow. a, a really just a lot of fun to play because it feels so free and it's it's sort of based on this raga like like thing. But wow. that's kind of a, unusual. Most of the yeah. time, you know, you really have to. Uh, 
you know, hit your mark, hit, hit your stuff exactly the way you want it. I mean, I mean exactly where it needs to go yeah. with, with the score, you know, cause there's, yeah, yeah. there's a moving train right. and you got to stay on yeah. the train. So it's, it's a lot less free wow, than people wow. think. Wow. But listen, man, I don't want to keep you uh, too long here. Okay, this has been so much fun. Let me just play you uh, 30 seconds of Stuff Smith uh, to end with. I just, we talked about Stuff Smith, so this is not very good sound quality because it comes off of YouTube, but it's him playing with Ella Fitzgerald and um, play It Don't Mean a Thing with Ella and a bunch of great people. You want to blow now? Come on. You want to wail now? Come on, we blow. of a big band on a violin. Yeah. It's like he's doing an abstract impressionistic painting <laughs> of what a big band would play rhythmically, except he plays the violin well, with some limited limited chops or something. And it's just... You <laughs> know, this is this is a great tune to play. It don't mean a, a thing, but it ain't got that swing. The whole idea of swing, what makes, to, to me, what makes something swing the word swing comes from the dance, right? It comes from something physical, mm. right? It's a swing mm. dancing. And if something's swinging, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's already <laughs> talking about a physical move, yes, movement yes. in space. Yes, it's, it's swinging. Dance. It comes from <laughs> dance. And you can tell by the way he's playing that he's dancing, that, mm. that his body is moving the way... A, to the music, he is not playing yeah, intellectually. Yeah. He's playing physically. <laughs> yeah, and in the video, which you can watch on YouTube of that clip, at some point in his second chorus, Oscar Peterson looks at Ella. Stands right behind Oscar, and he looks up at Ella. And they look at each other as if to say, "This madman is swinging. <laughs> this guy is with a fiddle is swinging like crazy." I, I have no idea you know? what it, what and, it looks like visually, but I can bet that he is in some form you know he's not like dancing around the room but he is his body is free to feel that groove all the way down to his knees and toes i don't understand any classical musician 
who couldn't listen to that and hear the interlocking parts rhythmically that produce this music. It's like a kind of rhythmic polyphony yeah. going on that, uh, in which everyone's part is so locked in together to make this train move. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'd like you to find me a classical player who would poo-poo that and let's ha have them get a talking to. Yeah, well, I think the problem <laughs> with a lot of classical musicians is that if it's not difficult to do, they don't respect it as much. <laughs> of, you know, if it's not Paganini, uh, then anybody could do it, so what is it worth? But then why, but how come it's so actually very difficult to do if it's <laughs> exactly. so easy to play quarter notes? Exactly. If it's so easy to play quarter notes perfectly, Go do how it. come there are only like th <laughs> three rhythm guitar players in history who've been able to play quarter notes? It, then in reality, it turns out to be very difficult. Yeah. Well, it turns to out do this simple. It thing. turns out being simple is really, really. It's really difficult. Really difficult. Who was it? Picasso or something? Yeah. He said it took me all my life to figure out how to paint like a child. And wow. that, to me, this. this is what it's all about: is how do we get back mm. to the way we felt music as five-year-olds? The way the Amazing. free and and a big part of it is just simply being uninhibited. If we if nobody's yeah. watching, we can swing cr great because we're, our bodies are free. If we're on stage and somebody's wow. watching, maybe I, I feel like I can't move, so or I'm nervous wow. and I'm not wow. moving. That's why my, yeah. I'm not swinging because my body isn't yeah, connected. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, wow. kids don't have that problem. Little kids, you know. Mm. Anyway, this has been so great, but you said there's one more thing you'd always do at the end. Yes. What is the other thing? Yes, it's a little game we do called Not My Gig. And this is based on Not My Job. Do you ever listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me NPR News Quiz? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. So they, they bring a guest in, a celebrity, and last week, for instance, it was Janet Yellen, you know, and they ask her questions about something she has that absolutely should not uh. know anything about. So... Great. Matt okay. Glazer, yes. artistic director of the American <laughs> Roots Music Program. We're going to find out how much... Bring it on. ...how much you know about Roots. So here's your first... There's three questions. You get any of them right, and you win. <laughs> okay. okay. Please. Okay, here's your first question. <laughs> this is about root systems. All so right. researchers have discovered that plants can communicate with each other through their root systems. But we don't really know what they're talking about. Which of the following things might plants be communicating? A, warning, we're out of water over here. Or mm. B, here, have some nitrogen. You seem a little pale. Or mm. C, the hackberries down the hill have bugs again. I would go with A. You are correct. I'm probably wrong. You are absolutely correct. I am? You are absolutely correct. They can sense when a, another tree in the forest is experiencing a dry condition oh, for some it's reason. It's heartbreaking. And they can oh, actually move, uh, use less water, oh. and allow more water to go to other plants. It's, oh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Incredible. Though. All right. Second question? Good. One out of one. All right. The second question is about Roto-Rooter. The Roto-Rooter advertising jingle uh, used today on, uh, on TV and radio. They still use it. It was created in 1954 and has been one of the longest running and best remembered musical jingles in 
history. And here it is. Roto Rooter is quick first aid for clogs, sewers, and stopped up drains. The wonderful Roto Rooter machine twists and turns and shaves lines clean. Call Roto Rooter, that's the name. And wake those troubles down the drain. Roto Rooter, Roto Rooter, Roto Rooter. (laughs) Okay, so there you go. It's really good. I dig it. don't you? It's really good. I think it's it's right, right up your alley. It has that bass line going in the opposite yes. direction from the melody. That's so. Uh. Okay. Well, classic jingle featured a memorable voice on that second half. And away you go, troubles down the drain. Sounds like a little bit like Popeye. Who was that featured singer? Was it A, Captain Stubby from Captain Stubby and the Buccaneers? Was it Never heard of that. B. Sheb Wooley, composer of the Purple People Eater? Also don't know or, that. Or, letter C, Bill Buchanan of Buchanan and Goodman? I know none of those three people, so I'm going to do a write-in candidate <laughs> of Johnny Frigo, the great jazz violinist. Johnny Frigo was the great Chicago-area writer of jingles. No kidding. You know, yeah, he not only was a virtuoso jazz violinist and bassist, but he made a shit ton of money in Chicago, excuse my French, writing jingles. And so I'm imagining Johnny Frigo being the voice. So I'm sure that's wrong. But which one of those three people I never heard of was It the was answer? actually Captain Stubby and the Buccaneers. Who's, have you heard of Captain <laughs> never, Stubby? Never. I never heard of that. Memorable voice in this commercial was that of Tom Foots, more widely known as Captain Stubby of Captain Stubby and the Buccaneers. Wow. And this was performed live on WLS Radio in Chicago oh. in 1954. Wow. Well, I wonder if, if um, Frigo was playing the bass or the accordion <laughs> on that track. I'm going to look into this. <laughs> Because I'm gonna, I'll get back to you. If Johnny Frigo is on that track, I get a half a credit for this. <laughs> you get a half for that answer. <laughs> I have a point. All right, you got one more. All you right, got one this more. This was so much fun. You get one more, okay. one more chance to redeem yourself here. Okay. All right. Question three is about the band The Roots. Hmm. No fair. They're alive. They are alive. Go they ahead. are alive. Formed <laughs> in 1987 in Philadelphia, with. Amir Questlove Thompson and Tariq Blackthought Trotter, while they were both attending the Philadelphia High School for the Creative and Performing Arts. That's where they met. Yep. They first started playing gigs in around 1989. Under what name? Was it A, Radio Activity, B, Black to the Future, or C, the square roots. For some reason, I'm thinking it's Black to the Future. Well, you are. Am I wrong? You are correct, and in fact, all of those were early versions of their band name. <laughs> I, I know nothing about any living musicians, so I. I true, true to your you disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> all right, this was so much fun. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. And now. Here's the unreleased, never-before-heard Wayfaring Strangers track called When I Was a Cowboy. When I was a cowboy Out on the western plain When I was a cowboy Out on the western plain 
Just pulling on the bridle rein. Come a cow, cow, yippee, yippee, cow, cow, yippee, aye. Come a cow, cow, yippee, yippee, cow, cow, yippee, aye. The hardest battle ever on the western plain. Oh, the hardest battle ever on the western plain. When me and a bunch of cowboys ran into Jesse James. Come a cow, cow, yippee, yippee, cow, cow, yippee, Come a cow, cow, yippee, yippee, cow, cow, yippee, Cowboys went into Jesse James. We had a bunch of cowboys went into Jesse James. The bullets started flying like a dark night summer rain. Come a cow, cow, yippee, yippee, cow, cow, yippee, aye. Come a cow, cow, yippee, yippee, cow, cow, yippee, aye. If you dug what we're talking about and you want to dig in deeper, please check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group where I post about each of my guests and where you can leave your comments and opinions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you're digging the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave me a rating or a review. Thanks a lot and groove on. (laughs) 